Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 531, where we heard directly from Jesse Miss Kelly's attorney, Mr. Dan Stidham. Dan did an amazing job of giving us a lot of the behind-the-scenes information about what was happening during all the pre-trial time, during the trial, what happened after the trial, and the response to Dan's interview has been overwhelmingly positive. Most everybody that listened to this to the episode in the interview just were taken aback by how really straightforward and and honest Dan is. And he's somebody that you have to really think about uh, when we are kind of debating the innocence and guilt. At the time, you know, Dan didn't have anything to gain by continuing to represent Jesse. Uh, He also actually also helped Damien and Jason during their post-conviction work uh, when he really wasn't supposed to, but just he just had a real heart for this case. He truly believed that Jesse Miss Kelly and still does is innocent. He definitely didn't miss any words during this episode. So that being said, we don't have a whole lot of questions. So Mike's going to ask me whatever you guys have from the fan page and Twitter and Facebook and every email and everywhere else. And then after our break, what we're going to do to follow up on this is let you guys hear Dan Stidham's actual closing arguments from Jesse Lloyd Miss Kelly's trial. Okay, our first question comes from Fred. Fred says, I was hoping to hear more from Dan about how the Alford plea actually came about. Some people say the defense proposed it. John Douglas's book says that the prosecution first proposed a no-low contender plea, but the defense counsel didn't believe Damien Eccles and especially Jason Baldwin would agree since that would require a guilty plea. So they came back with the Alford plea as it allowed the convicted to maintain their innocence. It may be subtle, but to me, this makes a huge difference in the argument that the West Memphis Three must be guilty since they are the ones to propose the Alford plea. Can this be put to rest? You know, I don't know. I I don't remember. I have read John, John Douglas's book, and I'm sure that that's in there. But, you know, John Douglas wasn't part of the defense team. He was an, an investigator and a consultant, an expert in the case. I really don't know. None of the I've spoken a lot with Jason and Damien, and neither have ever mentioned that. As far as I know, it really was proposed by the defense. But I also don't think, you know, as when I had my interview with Lisa O'Brien, when she came on the show, we talked a little bit about this. And you can make the exact same argument on both sides of this issue. Now, you can say that the defendants were obviously guilty because why would they propose the Alford plea when, you know, and again, as we mentioned in last week's episode, 
that uh, everybody points out, well, in just a few more months, they had their hearing for a new trial, and they and they they probably would have been granted a new trial. Well, yeah, probably, maybe, but that hearing had been pushed back so many times. That's why I brought up the staircase in last week's follow-up, because you see how long that process takes. I mean, it's and we've seen with the non-Sayed's case and every single other post-conviction case that it's not overnight. If, if you're going to fight it to the end and you've got a, a an adversarial prosecutor working against you, which most of the time you do, you're talking years and years and years and years and years. And it's easy for us to sit back on the outside and say, well, fight it, maintain your innocence. But when you're that person, and everybody's got a different personality, but when you're that person who is behind bars, your life has been taken away from you, innocent or guilty, just, I mean, you're living, prison is not a cakewalk. You've all had the pleasure of hearing from a lot of people who are living in prison on this show. And to have the possibility of just going home in the short term, oftentimes, that's why Alfred pleas happen. Oftentimes, people are just ready to, to go. And in the short term, they don't care. They just want to go home. And, but again, you know, people will make that argument that because they, whether they accepted it or proposed it, it doesn't matter that that's an indication that they're guilty. But again, the argument on the other side is just the same. If Scott Ellington was certain that the three were guilty, which I do want to point out that, you know, in in communications I've had, that that is his stance, that that he believes the case is solved and the three are guilty and the right. And that's what he said publicly, that the three are in prison. But um, looking at the the same, and and of course, the other three have said they're innocent publicly. But when you look at that decision, if he's certain they're guilty, these are three brutal child killers and he believes he can win a trial, then why would he agree to an Alfred plea? Furthermore, whoever proposed the Alfred plea, it doesn't matter, because the only one that can put it before a judge is the prosecutor. I, I can propose anything. I, I can propose the prosecutor, hey, let us out, drop the charges. What well, doesn't matter? The, the prosecutor has to make that decision and then put it before a judge. And so I think that, that like I've said before in many, many other occasions, I think that there was clearly a lot of doubt and concern on both sides as to what the ultimate outcome would be. And the Alfred plea was was the way out for everyone to kind of save face. The state was able to save face because they still got their guilty plea and the defense got to Jesse, Jason and Damien got to go home. So I I just I don't think how a, a case pleas out should ever be an argument for guilt or innocence. And it's it's just grasping at straws. It's a it's a I've said it before in this case and others. It's a weak argument. You want to argue guilt or innocence to me? Show me evidence, not you know all this all this stuff like well they they accepted this plea so they must be guilty because who would do that? Well, why don't you sit in eight in prison for eighteen years and then get offered a chance to go home right now and see what decision you make? All right, Deborah says, can the police officer who perjured himself still be prosecuted? No, and I want to make clear from us here on the Truth and Justice podcast and NBI Studios allegedly perjured himself. But yeah, I I saw the question on the fan page and and no, I don't think so. I mean, there's a statute of limitations on most things except murder uh, that spans anywhere from three to five to seven years. So no, I don't think so. And and again, how would you ever prove it? I mean, it was, in my opinion, it was proven at trial. And that's the the thing about this argument and, and what people were willing to believe. I mean, Stidham marched in one after another, after another people from that neighborhood, some people very close to Jesse, some people who weren't, who all said the police were there. They saw Jesse there. They saw Jesse speaking to the police officer. You know, like like Lewis Hogarth. That's not like a great close friend of Jesse's. He was there mowing his grass, I think, and he and he saw him. All these people said it happened, but the guy wearing the uniform sits down and says, nope, didn't happen, and the jury believed it. 
Sarah asks, Stidham said that when he realized it was going to take years to derail the train coming down the tracks, he started, quote, setting little traps that he thought an appellate court might grasp. Do you know what any of these traps were? I'm sure there's more. And I actually emailed Dan before we, a little while ago, and he hasn't gotten back to me yet uh, about that. But I know some of them, like, for example, what he talked about, the the proffered testimony, if you hadn't caught that, which is where he had, I think, I think Holmes and Afshay, I was looking on, on Callahan's earlier in the transcript to see if the proper testimony is there, and it's not, or I couldn't find it. But that was, you know, quote, setting a trap, meaning the judge ruled the jury could not hear their conclusions in a couple of ways. So in Afshay's case, he wasn't allowed to say that he believed that this was a false confession. He could talk about what a false confession was, some issues he had with the interview, but he could not tell the jury that, in my expert opinion, this was a coerced false confession. So, you know, a lot of attorneys would leave it at that. They made their argument and they could try to argue that. But what Stidham did was because what will happen in post conviction work, we've seen it with the Nancy Edge case with Asia McLean, is you're making an argument about what would have been, what would have been had this person testified. And you have to kind of imagine what it would have been like. And then the argument is, well, yeah, but they, would they have stood up to cross-examination and things like that? So the proffered testimony was, Stidham said, well, if you're not going to let him testify in front of the jury, I still want him to testify in full about his conclusions, including cross-examination, just like it would have happened in front of the jury. And, and so what he wanted is to get that on the record so that later in post-conviction work, if somebody says that you know it was an error, the judge, the judge made an error in ruling that Offshay, the expert, could not give his expert opinion in that regard, they could say, number one, it was wrong that he didn't allow him to testify. And secondly, we know exactly how that testimony would have went because we already did it in the proper testimony. So that, that's an example of it. I, I don't think he did a proffer with uh, Holmes regarding the, the polygraph. And I don't, Mike, I don't know if you have any, do you have any questions on there about the polygraph? Because uh, I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, but go ahead. Okay, so one of the questions that I was seeing and people were asking was, why was the polygraph even an issue? We all know that polygraphs are not admissible in court. They haven't been for a long time, other than very, very special circumstances. So why was it why why did Stidham think that it should have been admitted? And the reason for that is he wasn't asking for it to be admitted based on its uh its scientific value, meaning he wasn't trying to present to the jury uh Jesse Miss Kelly took a polygraph examination and he passed according to Warren Holmes. That wasn't the point. The reason he wanted the polygraph in is because he wanted to demonstrate to the jury. He wanted them to understand why Jesse Miss Kelly confessed. Now, you can say, and I don't know, but it was uh, it was an honest mistake on Durham's part. Or you can say that it was intentional corruption for co- coercion. But Miss Kelly took his polygraph examination. Durham said that he failed. And then he actually says in the report, like we've said before, quote, lied his ass off. And when Miss Kelly was presented with that, that we know you lied. We know you were there because our machine told us so. Your brain's telling us that you're lying. We know you were there. That's when he finally broke down and and gave them his his story, his confession, which, again, as as Stidham uh, very astutely put it, it wasn't him that, that confessed. He basically agreed with Ridge and Gitchell as they gave him his confession. But the point in bringing that in was the fact that that is why he was coerced, because it was important, as he said, he had to fake, once he realized it was a false confession, the bigger challenge was trying to convince a 1993 jury that it was a false confession 
how and why. And in his opinion, and my and I agree, that would have gone a long way for them to understand when you tell this kid who does have some intellectual disability that, hey, you failed this lie detector test. We know you're lying, so you might as well confess. So he confesses. That's what the jury wasn't able to hear, and that's why he wanted the polygraph to come in. Emmy says, in an old interview on YouTube, Dan Stidham mentioned that he thought that the West Memphis Three murders could be the work of a serial killer. She says, I don't know if he still has the same opinion, but just for speculation's sake, have you guys entertained the possibility of a serial killer? I'm not sure what Dan's theories are as far as that, um, serial killers. I personally don't think so for all the reasons we've named in the past as far as you know the, the, the criminal behavior of the crime scene. A serial killer going through that amount of body concealment doesn't seem likely to me. Now, I, I think that people, I think Dan may be, have been one of them, you know, have, have looked at other similar cases from the region and kind of linked them together. But to me, this is 100% a personal cause homicide. This is someone with a known personal relationship uh, to at least one of the victims. I think very likely that one murder was an accident and the other two were intentional to to cover up for the first one. But I personally don't, I mean, I would not rule anything out, but to me, this this screams personal cause homicide and does not indicate to me at all that this was a random serial killer with no relationship to the three victims. All right. And Jennifer says, when is Dan Stidham's book out, especially an audible version? Well, it's not written yet. So I, th- I think he said in the interview that uh, 2019, he's looking at next year. He's been working on it for a long time and, and he had it, it sounded like he had it pretty much done and then decided to rewrite a lot of it, and then he brought in this co-author with him to help him finish that up. But he he said, looking at next year, it should be done. Okay, and real quick, Bob, off the air earlier today, you and I were talking about Stidham's statement in the interview about, quote, cheating to lose. Can you elaborate on what he meant by cheating to lose? Yeah, I I think that that was a great way to put it, and I don't remember who it was, the psychologist that had taught him that phrase, but it makes a lot of sense, you know, and and I was just, actually, Becky was listening to the interview in the car with me this weekend, and and she so for those of you that don't know, my wife worked at school for emotionally impaired kids for 16 years. You know, these are special education children, a lot of them who have emotional issues, some cognitive issues, some autistic issues. So she's worked with children. As she put it, she's worked with a lot of Jesse's over the year. And when he said it, she knew exactly what he was talking about. And it was a real eye opener for me. And hopefully if you're looking at this objectively with an open mind, you can think about why is Jesse doing what he's doing. So what what Stidham meant by cheating to lose is, and I, I think he explained it pretty well, but just to, I guess, simplify it even more, is that someone who has an intellectual disability like Jesse Miss Kelly, okay? So he he has, you know, in a lot of ways, he's like a normal 17-year-old, but in a lot of ways, mentally, he is more like a anywhere five, six, seven-year-old. And it's embarrassing to them. And and these kids are smart, as 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 Becky put it to me, they're they're street smart in the sense that they know how to hide their disability. And these kids, she's she's told me she actually named off three or four kids that she had in the last couple of years she was still there teaching, that they would do anything that anybody told them to do. And it was because they were trying to mask and hide their disability. Because what they learn is if if you have intellectual issues, the quickest and easiest way to expose that to people is by trying to argue with them. And so what they've learned is just to go with the flow, especially with authority figures. When they're told what to do, they just do it. And when you're having a conversation or an argument with them, they just agree and go right along with whatever you're saying. And that's what he meant by cheating to lose is because all they're trying to do is not create an adversarial situation where they have to defend their thoughts because they're not good at doing that. And it exposes their disability. It's embarrassing. So that's what Stidham meant by by cheating to lose. And and you think about that 
And and when Becky kind of gave me that perspective of her firsthand experience, and, and of course that's I met my wife at that school because I was a substitute teacher there for seven years, and so I had a little bit of it, but not nearly the experience and training that she's had. It made a lot of sense. You see, I I knew a lot of these kids she named that, you know, why would Jesse just go along with him like that? And just just because you know he you know has a lower IQ or whatever, but it's just it's a it's a learned behavior on how to get out of situations is just to agree and not argue and just go with the flow and go along with what everyone's saying, especially an authority figure. All right, that's going to be all we have for questions, but there was a lot of praise for Dan in this interview. Yeah, it was all over social media and emails and everything else. Everybody everybody really loved Dan, and as I, as I mentioned in the episode, I have a ton of respect for Dan Stidham. As, as he mentioned, he was the only attorney that was there from beginning to end, and uh, as, as is noted uh, throughout, you know, anywhere you read on the internet, one of the big issues was that they weren't getting paid. They didn't have the funding for experts. I mean, Warren Holmes and, and Afshay are powerhouses as experts in the fields that they came in to talk about with polygraphs and false confessions. And and Dan worked his ass off to get those guys to come in and testify for free, you know, with, with nothing to gain for himself other than he believed he had an innocent client and was going to do everything he could do to fight for him. And like I said, we, we don't have a bunch of questions here for you, so we're going to take a break here for the ad. And then when we come back, we're going to just play you it's about 20 minutes long, the closing arguments made by Dan Stidham from the trial. And and what you're going to hear is, you know, he starts off talking a lot about Warren Holmes and Offshay, and that's because the state and their closing arguments really hammered on. They were trying to attack the the credibility of this literally, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning author and, and trying to attack their credibility as experts because, as you'll hear Dan say, they didn't have a case against Jesse Miss Kelly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There have been a lot of objections and there have been a lot of approaches to the bench and, and I also thank you for that. Um, during the prosecution's closing argument, I got a little confused and for a minute there I actually thought Dr. Richard Offshay was on trial instead of Jesse Miss Kelly. I think there's a reason for that, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, and I think the reason is clear. The prosecutor spent most of his time talking about our defense, Mr. Holmes and Dr. Offshay. The reason for that is because they don't have a case against Jesse Lloyd and Miss Kelly Jr. In order for you to find that Jesse Lloyd and Miss Kelly Jr. is guilty of three counts of capital murder, you must find him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And we talked about that in Bodire, and I want to talk about it again. If we make it through this or this thing without falling, it'll be a miracle. <clears throat> As we talked about in Vodire, ladies and gentlemen, there are three legally recognized burdens of proof in the law. The first one is by preponderance of the evidence. That's the lowest standard. The middle standard is clear and convincing evidence. That means you have to have evidence which is clear and convincing. And then there's the top standard, beyond a reasonable doubt. 
the highest standard recognized in the law. For you to find Jesse Lloyd and Miss Taylor Jr. guilty, you must find that the state proved its case beyond a reasonable doubt. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we would submit to you that there is a reasonable doubt about the defendant's guilt. In fact, we would submit to you that there's many, many reasonable doubts. And that's what I'd like to go over with you in closing is these reasonable doubts. And I want to talk to you about each and every one of them. The first area of reasonable doubt is Jesse's story that he gave the police. What evidence has the, has the state introduced against Jesse in this trial? His statements. That's all they got. There's nothing else. This wild story that he told the police on June the 3rd, 1993. In this story, Jesse says that Jason called him at 9 p.m. on May the 4th. He also says that Jason Baldwin called him at 9 a.m. on May the 5th. That can't be true. Jesse wasn't home. He spent the night with Josh Darby on May the 4th. He went roofing at 9 a.m. the next morning. And that was testified by two witnesses. Josh Darby doesn't have a telephone. How could he have gotten these phone calls? The next reasonable doubt, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, is that the victims were sodomized. Jesse told the police that these little boys were raped. There's no evidence of that. The medical examiner sat right there in that chair and told you that there was no evidence of physical trauma to those little boys suggestive of the fact that they'd been sodomized. The next reasonable doubt, and Jesse in this story tells the police, well, I was up there by the service road when this was happening. Do you remember where the service road is on the diagram of the crime scene? About 450 feet through dense vegetation. It was impossible. A witness testified that it's almost impossible to see through there now in January. Imagine what it would be like in May when you have all that foliage. It's, it's not possible. Probably the biggest reasonable doubt that we've heard during the course of this trial is that Jesse says the murders took place at noon. Everyone agrees that that's not true. It can't be true. The victims were in school all day. Jason Baldwin was in school that day. And Jesse was roofing till past noon. So we know that this could not have happened. The next reasonable doubt, Jesse says that he went to West Memphis with Damien and Jason at 9 a.m. on May the 5th. Again, we know that's not the case. Jason was in school all day. And Jesse was roofing with Ricky Deese and Josh Darby. We know that that's not true. It can't be true. I'm going to try it this way. Another one of the major, major reasonable doubts is the brown rope. The victims were not tied up with a brown rope. Jesse tells Gitchell 
they were tied up with a brown rope. It just didn't happen. Everyone knows that the victims were tied with shoestrings. Another reasonable doubt, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Jesse says that Damien choked Chris Byers with a big old stick. The medical examiner says that didn't happen. There's no evidence on the body to suggest that Chris Byers was choked or that any of the victims were choked. It just didn't happen. The prosecution wants you to forget about these major, major impossibilities. They want you to believe only the things that Jesse may have gotten right. They want you to forget about all these big, big, reasonable doubts. That's why we're here today, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, to talk about reasonable doubts. The next area of reasonable doubt deals with Jesse's alibi. The prosecution would have you believe that Jesse somehow has a mystical, magical time machine which enables him to be in two places at one time. He can't do that. We can't do that. Nobody can do that. You can't be in two places at one time. May the 5th, 1993. The prosecution would have you believe that that's just like any other day. No special reason to remember what you were doing that day. Well, that may be true for, for people who didn't live in West Memphis. Or excuse me, for people who didn't live in West Memphis. But for people who did, people who lived in Highland Trailer Park and other parts of the city, May 5th was an important day. And there are several reasons why it was an important day. And before we talk about this, I will ask each and every one of you to think about how is it that you remember things? How do you remember events and dates? You go back and you look at calendars, you look at birthdays, you look at events, and you go back and try to tie those time references together. That's common sense. The dollar incident happened on May the 5th. Everyone in Highland Trailer Park was outside looking at the incident. Cody Romero was pulled off the bicycle by the head of his hair. Everyone was out there and seen that. The police were out there. The police testified that they were there. The police logs show that they were there. Everyone was outside. Kevin Johnson on the search and rescue squad. He was at a meeting that night. He remembers that night. He testified that he remembers that night. He told you that he was supposed to go wrestling with his brother. He invited his brother Keith Johnson to go that night. But he went to a search and rescue meeting. And at that search and rescue meeting, he heard about the boys missing. He didn't know whether they were going to have to go out and look that night. He didn't go wrestling. Keith Johnson only went wrestling that one night, and that's the night that his brother was at the search and rescue meeting. <clears throat> also, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Jesse Sr. was at DWI school that night. You've seen the receipt, evidence in the fact that he was there. You've seen the uh, roll sheet where he was present at the meeting. Also, the boys were missing that night. Everyone in town knew that, especially folks who were on the search and rescue squad. The next day, the bodies were discovered. And that was on not only the local news, but the national news covered that. Everybody in West Memphis can remember that day. Everybody. Not just people in Highland Trader Park. Not just people who wear yellow ribbons. Everyone can remember that. 
May the 5th, 1993. I prepared a timeline to demonstrate to you uh, the aspects of Jesse's alibi all day. At 9 a.m., Jesse is roofing with Josh Darby and Ricky Dees. At 1 p.m., Ricky Dees drops Jesse off at home. He's in the trailer park at 1 o'clock. Not in Robin Hood Hills, uh, witnessing three boys getting killed at noon. 2.30 p.m., Jesse begins babysitting for Stephanie Dollar. 3.30 p.m., Susie Brewer comes home, goes to the trailer park. She joins Jesse at Stephanie's and helps him babysit the children. 4 to 6 p.m., many of the people that testified during the course of the trial told you that they seen Jesse between the hours of 4 and 6 p.m. in Highland Trailer Park. Six fifteen p.m., Jim McNeese has to close down Jim's repair shop because Jesse Sr. is at DWI school. He testified that at 6 o'clock or about that time, he closed the shop. He went home, and at 6.15 p.m., Jim McNeese sees little Jesse and Dennis Carter out in the street. He talks to them, and they talk about wrestling. 6.30 to 7 p.m., again, is the dollar incident. There was lots of people outside watching and trying to figure out what was happening. The police were there. Everybody's outside wondering what's going on. Lewis Hogger, the trucker, you've seen his truck log. He told you when he was in town, May the 5th. He sees Jesse. Charles Ashley, he sees Jesse. Susie Brewer, Stephanie Dollar, Christy Jones, Dennis Carter. These people are with Jesse at Highland Trailer Park. Seven fifteen p.m. Jesse Senior comes home from DWI school. The police are leaving the trailer park. He's afraid because he's driving on a suspended license. That's how he can remember. He quickly goes home so he doesn't get caught by the police for driving on a suspended license. He sees Jesse Jr. at the trailer. At about seven thirty p.m., little Jesse Miss Kelly leaves for Dias with these individuals: Freddie Ravel, who testified. Bill Cox, who didn't testify, Roger Jones, Dennis Carter, and Johnny Hamilton, who we were able to find right before the, the trial, before the defense started presenting its case. All these people, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, testified to you under oath that Jesse Miss Kelly was with them in another county about 40 miles away from West Memphis on May the 5th at the time that these little boys are being murdered. p.m. Jesse and the other wrestlers meet Keith Johnson at the Exxon station at the junction of High Highway 63 and Interstate 55. They pick up Keith, they go on to Diaz, and at about 11.30, Jesse and the others arrive back at Highland Trailer Park. From 11.30 to midnight, little Jesse spends time with Roger Jones and Jennifer Roberts at their trailer. That accounts for him the entire day. The entire day. You have to ask for a timeout and switch pads.
The next area of reasonable doubt, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, is a very, very important one. No physical evidence linking Mr. Miskelly to the crime scene or to these homicides. None. Not just a, not even a little bit. None. There's no footprints on the blue Adidas shoes or any other shoes they looked at. No fingerprints. No hairs. Lisa Sakavas. Sakavishes, that's the best I can do, and I'm sorry. Testify that she'd examined hundreds of hairs, none of which matched little Jesse Miss Kelly. No fibers? No fibers matched Mr. Miss Kelly. None. No physical evidence. There is one item of physical evidence which the prosecution would have you just bypass and ask you to not consider because it's not very important and it's not logical. Well, I would submit to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that when three little boys are murdered at approximately the same time that a gentleman stumbles into a fast food restaurant minutes from the crime scene covered with blood and covered with mud and the police aren't even interested enough to come in the store and check it out till the next day and take blood samples? Were the blood samples ever submitted to the crime lab? Were the sunglasses ever submitted to the crime lab? Who knows? I call that a reasonable doubt. On Christopher Byers, the boy who was mutilated, the negroid hair was found on the sheet covering his body. Is that a coincidence, as the prosecution would have you believe? I don't think so. I call it a reasonable doubt. The next area of reasonable doubt, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, is this cult business. Officer Ridge testified that he couldn't confirm any of the people on Jesse's list of cult members. None. Detective Ridge also testified that there were no cult artifacts at the crime scene, that there were no cult artifacts at Turtle Twist, where this alleged cult meeting was supposed to supposedly taking place. There's no evidence that this is a cult homicide. No evidence. The next area of reasonable doubt, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, is the fact that little Jesse Miss Kelly has a mental handicap. He has a low IQ. He has low self-esteem. He's very suggestible. He's codependent. He feels the need to conform to authority figures. And that's why some of the most compelling testimony that came out of this witness chair was from two expert witnesses, <coughs> Mr. Holmes and Dr. Offshay. The most compelling testimony came from those two witnesses about these very ideas and more specifically about the profile of one who falsely confesses something they didn't do. Mr. Holmes, who doesn't have 13 years of experience, 39 years of experience with the Miami Police Department, lecturing to the FBI, the CIA. This gentleman worked on John F. Kennedy's assassination, Martin Luther King's assassination, Watergate, the Boston Strangler case, the Hampton case in Louisiana. 39 years of experience. And what did he tell you? The profile 
of a false confessor is someone with a low IQ and a weak personality. He also told you that there were several problems with Jesse's statement. A, there's no corroboration. Jesse Miss Kelly didn't tell the police anything that they didn't already know. Nothing. There's no narrative in the statement. The prosecutor has asked you to go back to the jury room and listen to the tape. I want you to do that too. And when you're listening to the tape, ask yourself this question. Does this sound like a kid who is telling you about something that he's seen or is it telling you something about that he made up or that was suggested to him? There's no narrative in the statement. Every time the police officers ask him to elaborate about a detail, he says, well, they were doing this and stuff. And they were doing this and stuff. Then we did this and stuff. Does that sound like someone who witnessed three homicides telling about it? There's no narrative. Mr. Holmes also testified that Mr. Miss Kelly was wrong on too many points. And we talked about those earlier. Mr. Holmes concentrated on two of the big ones, time and ligatures. Two very, very important things about the crime that Jesse Miss Kelly got wrong. Mr. Holmes also testified that the officers were very leading and very suggestive. They led him through this entire tape statement. And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we don't know what happened before they turned the tape recorder on. They didn't videotape it. The officers didn't take notes on all the questions. They testified to that. They even testified they couldn't remember some of the things they asked him. How do we know what really happened? And that's when we get to Dr. Offset. <laughs> Dr. Offset is a doctor. He's not a medical doctor, but he is a doctor. And I would submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, that his testimony was riveting. His testimony was very, very helpful in trying to establish what happened in this interrogation. Dr. Offshay also testified that the profile of a false confessor is someone with a low IQ and someone who has low self-esteem. His expert opinion, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is what he told you, that the West Memphis Police Department used coercive psychological tactics to get a statement from Jesse Miskeller. The police were suggestive and they led Jesse through the entire statement. When you listen to the statement, when you read about the statement, think again about the narrative and think about the way these officers led him through the entire statement. The way they suggested things to him through the entire statement. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, what I'm about to tell you is the most important thing that you will hear throughout the course of this trial. A very learned judge in the state of Florida once said in one of her opinions, she said that the killing of one human being by another is a most heinous act, only exceeded by the killing of an innocent man by the state. 
ladies and gentlemen of the jury, my client, little Jesse Miss Kelly, is an innocent man. He's innocent. And I would ask you to go back to that jury room and bring back a verdict that rings of justice, truth and justice. And I would ask you to bring back a verdict that you can live with for the rest of your life. Thank you. So there you have it. That was Dan Stidham's closing argument at the end of Jesse Miss Kelly's trial. Now, so far, we've heard directly from Jason Baldwin with his behind-the-scenes experience through his trial. Now we've heard from Dan Stidham, so we know what was going on with Jesse Miss Kelly. And last but not least, in two days this Sunday, you're going to hear directly from Damian Eccles. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. All right. Hit them up right now. Okay, Bob. Let's get started. I am. (laughs) Okay. Okay. <laughs> Feel a little goofy, huh? Yeah. Man, I am a Harry's man through and through. <laughs> no, no. Steve motherfucker. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Let me tell you, the Ruff household is a Harry's family through and through. <laughs> What's wrong with through and through? What's wrong with through and through? I thought our little giggle exchange there was was. Well, I didn't know what part you didn't like. Through and through. What's wrong with is <laughs> who says that anymore? God damn it. <laughs> wrong with through and through grove rat through and through is that what is that is that what's in your head is that why it's no good for you yeah it Steve. is <laughs> you had so much fun with that episode i know god damn all right we're back to <laughs>